This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayan Mayang. Today I'm speaking with Tusha Yakoleva. A similar question is what memories do we need to, to cherish for the sake of a, of a just and reciprocal future. And it's, it's really hard for me to imagine that the memories of categorizing the more than human world into binaries of good and bad, especially during a time of great biodiversity loss, will hold much wisdom for, for generations yet to come. Tusha Yakoleva is an educator, gatherer, and ethnobotanist whose work revolves around generating strong, respectful relationships between plants and people. Tusha's botanical knowledge is rooted in rural and urban lands within northern temperate forests across two continents. The foundations of her lifelong foraging practices come from her family and first home, the Volga River watershed in Russia, where tending to uncultivated plants and mushrooms for food and medicine is common practice. Tisha's efforts in growing reciprocity between land and people have included running a wild food program, learning the gifts of weeds, working with food sovereignty groups, keeping seeds, growing perennials, organizing community gardening and forestry, and sharing the stories of plants. Tusha is the author of Edible Weeds on Farms, Northeast Farmer's Guide to Self-Growing Vegetables, a resource for wild edible plants on cultivated soils. Tisha is currently completing graduate work at SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry on Onaga Nation homelands. Her research is in support of cross-cultural partnerships for biocultural restoration and takes place under the guidance of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Tisha spent 15 plus years in the Hudson River watershed and presently lives in Ute ancestral homelands near the headwaters of the Rio Grande, where she is meeting many spiky plants and missing sphagnum bogs. Well, Tusha, thank you so much for joining us today for one of my favorite topics, which we are about to explore. Uh, well, many topics. So yeah, thanks for joining us on this beautiful spring morning. Thank you so much, Ayanna. It's good to be with you. Oh, there was so much um, in your research that I felt connected with. And I want to read one of your quotes from your book, Edible Weeds on Farms, Northeast Farmer's Guide to Self-Growing Vegetables. And it's, quote, weeds love disturbance and most humans love to disturb. And thus humans and weeds share a long intertwined history. For anyone who has ever turned the soil, weeds are our ancestry and our inheritance, end quote. And I really am feeling connected to your words, especially as the weeds in my garden are just reaching for the sky, taking over 
everywhere they can. And so many of my neighbors are attempting to really have some neat and tidy gardens where mine looks pretty wild. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to dive into this topic of this intertwined history of humans and weeds and explore some of these notions together. Sure, I would love to. Um, well, I think first we we need to define our terms. Um, you know, weeds is a is a very well known word, but its its definition is a little bit slippery. Um, there are there are no weeds in botany. Um, a weed is really in the eye of the weeder. And it's, it's a significant group of plants, but it's really not contained within, within any sort of specific botanical definition. It's sort of an ephemeral concept defined according to the relationship between a person and a plant in a given time and place. So it's forever subject to, to context um, and nuance. That being said, of course, the term does have a strong reputation. Um, I think it's, in my mind, it's associated with two, um, two general characteristics. One is that it it's, refers to plants who are often vilified and who are unwanted in, in a lot of circles. Um, and of course, the, the word itself has come to be applied um, beyond plants as well to mean undesirable or, or useless. And it also refers to an ecological niche. The majority of plants who are considered weeds, not all, are early succession species and who specifically thrive in in disturbance in those upturned soils. So they're plants who who live near people um, since we move soils so frequently. Um, And in that perpetually reset the successional clock back to an ideal habitat for for the so-called weeds to germinate in. Now I want to spend a little time um, sort of uh, setting a foundation for for our relationship through time through the lens of agriculture. Um, And of course there are many other ways to tell the story. But in relation to agriculture, you know that's that's really one of the birthplaces of of so-called weeds. And that's not to say that plants who thrive in, in bare mineral soils didn't exist before fields were cultivated, but they certainly didn't have as much perfect habitat to live on, and they were less likely to get in the way of, of human activities, I think. And there's, um, there's archaeological evidence that shows that wild plants co-evolved very rapidly alongside planted crops in the early days of of farming. Um, And many millennia later to this day, agriculture and weeds are still inextricably linked in in this co-evolutionary dance. But of course, today there's there's an accompanying um, robust industry and uh, sort of associated scientific literature that offers solutions to the so-called problem of weeds. Um, yet in, in my research, I see, I rarely hear the question of whether these plants you know, belong in disturbed soils. So 
growing season after growing season through activities such as farming and then, and then beyond agriculture, other soil disturbance events like building and mining, cutting forests, uh, many people inadvertently sow more and more weeds. Um, but coming back to agriculture, you know, somewhere along this joint history, the pressures of capital accumulation and affinity for planting in straight lines allowed many of us to forget the gifts of, of wild plants. And then from there, coaxing medicine or nutrition and um, maintaining healthy soils came to be seen as a jurisdiction of, of precise science with no space for unruly, spontaneous ways of, of wild plants. Um, and in fact, they came to be seen as sort of competing against the, the very gifts that they have provided for so long to, to people. Now, I think those the dominant extractive narratives, they, they continue to place cultivated and wild plants into, into dichotomy. Um, and any positive attributes of weeds and disturbed spaces are often silenced in, in lieu of the difficulties that they present to to farmers or builders or you know, other human neighbors. Um, and this perspective leaves out all of the entwined ecological history of, of weeds and, and cultivated crops, but also the, the genetic collaboration between weeds and crops and also the cultural collaborations between weeds and people. There's really, I don't think there's a hard line between weeds and so-called vegetables, cultivated vegetables. The plants that we have come to know as vegetables today are the product of so-called weeds being selected and tended by, by generations of gardeners. And they're essentially a product of, uh, of ethnobotany, of people and, and plants stepping into long-term committed relationships. Long-term committed relationships of, of spectacular patience and spectacular effort by, by people with, with long-rooted um, ties to place who select wild plants for traits that provide generously to human communities. And this is not work that's frozen in the past. It's, it's ongoing, it's intergenerational, and it's been undertaken largely, primarily, I'd say, by indigenous communities across the planet. So today's weeds might be the crops of tomorrow and today's crops were the weeds of yesterday. Um, and, and I think one important point in this genetic collaboration is also just that the present day wild plants continue to support agriculture by carrying beneficial genetic traits like dense nutrition or, or pest resistance or particular drought resistance or, you know, particular sort of ability to withstand climactic stressors. And then, yeah, I also want to say just about the, the cultural collaborations between weedy plants and people. This too, I see as a, a, a immemorial practice. People have only ever relied on plants for pretty much all of our needs. We're, we're really nothing without plants. And those urgent and or frequent needs are, are often met by plants that are most readily and abundantly accessible. And 
so many such essential plants are, are now best known as weeds. They're the plants who have traveled around the world in the pockets of, of immigrants or carried with, you know, with intention as, as precious holders of, of nourishment and healing. And yeah, and last thing I want to say is, you know, plants have, have always moved around the planet. And as people began moving at greater distances at greater speeds, the, the plants followed. Um, so people became very impactful seed dispersers, um, which in, in the history of Turtle Island, that's, that's especially true for settlers, as you sort of quoted um, my work in, in, in the beginning, I, I see, I see uh, newcomers to, to, to Turtle Island as contemporaries with weeds and our lives and histories as being in, in great synchronicity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much in that response that I'm thinking of which, which part to dive deeper into. Mm. It's interesting because I feel that especially industrial agriculture works so hard to control and to grow what may not even want to be grown on the land that they are mm -hmm. attempting to yet weeds grow so abundantly. Uh, I'm thinking of dandelion, for instance, dandelion is a green that is edible. It's medicinal and it wants to grow. It really wants to spread. It wants to be prolific. Yet instead of us allowing the dandelions to nurture and nourish us, we poison the dandelions and then force some cultivated green to grow in places that they're not trying to grow. And I guess I want to speak to this resistance and uh, the resistance we have as a dominant culture to plants and what it would look like for our food system if we actually allowed for more space for the plants to choose <laughs> how uh, not how much they want to give us exactly because I know that we can't just be completely free in our growing methods. But I just think that there's something here, the struggle and the fight and not actually seeing what does want to give abundance. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if there's anything in that, that uh, pulls on you. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there. Well, I think maybe picking up the, the thread from dandelions. No, I think they are such a good example of, of this sort of our dominant culture's amnesia about, about the gifts of these spontaneous plants. They proliferated on Turtle Island after European settlers planted them near their homesteads for, for food and for medicine. And then it wasn't until about a century ago that their reputation soured and they were no longer welcomed in front of, of people's homes and were replaced by, by lawns. So I think that says a lot about just kind of forgetting our place in, in the circle of beings. You know, no, none of us lead 
lives independent of other creatures with whom we share home. We're not exempt from interdependence. Yeah, I don't know. In my mind, there's a sort of circle of beings as a synonym for the wild, basically, which is which is everything that is all around us, always, including ourselves and this everything. But of course, encompasses all the beings whose lives uh, fulfill our needs for survival. Weedy plants are not excluded. So I think the placement of weeds and sort of in, in contrast with um, with the wild or even with human desire is this part of this great othering that so many guests on, on For the Wild have, have spoken to so, so eloquently. But of course, we are, I don't know, we're the same. The wild is us and we're the wild and thus weeds are kin. And I think there's a prevailing myth of, of the self-made person. Um, but how can, how can anyone, how can a person whose body runs on plants and water be self-made? I think the dominant culture praises extractive ways of being that encourage us to, to categorize the world into useful and useless and perpetually take action to, to increase the former and, and erase the latter. And I see this as a fearful way of living that also just lends to forgetting that that plants have made our bodies and that our lives depend on, on other creatures. I feel like I've, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> Tangents are good. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate being able to run free with our minds. And I think something else that I was getting at is this judo Christian origin story, which is dominion over the land. And mm-hmm. We see this informing the dominant invasive species management strategies within industrial Western societies. And so I want to explore what another story might be, a story that we tell ourselves around our relationship with spontaneous plants and what management practices can emerge from that restoring. Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, first of all, I think stories are Therefore, remembering an essential purpose of of storytelling is to carry memories and and to share it through time. So maybe another way to ask a similar question is what memories do we need to to cherish for the sake of a a just and reciprocal future? And it's, it's really hard for me to imagine that the memories of categorizing the more than human world into binaries of good and bad especially during a time of great biodiversity loss, will hold much wisdom for for generations yet to come. So I think specific to to plants of weedy proclivities, we can start by telling stories that aim to see them as as beings in their own right, rather than beings in opposition to human desire. It's abundantly clear to me that whatever new stories we tell ourselves or old ones that we remember, have to center reciprocal livelihoods rather than a hierarchy of needs with, with humans placed at the top. At least um, these are the stories we're in dire need of telling ourselves if humanity is to have any hope of a future, which includes us. And, and I do see the story of dominion fully expressed in, in the sort of management policies of, of weedy or invasive species within within westernized societies. And 
it's interesting this narrative around the management makes makes these plants and animals sound like such great threats that that one one could assume that they only occur within the political boundaries of the management agency making policies yet of course these beings do not adhere to political borders and moreover they they have diverse rich relationships with other beings that they're in community with there are plenty of humans and, and more than humans who have stepped into relationship of of care of mutual care with these vilified plants there are endless examples of pollinators who turn to japanese knotweed for late season nectar um, basket makers who turn to kudzu for their strong flexible fibers um, water who is supported by pragmites and and phytoremediation um you know alongside all this i think that yes there's great grief and heartbreak in the loss of coval ecosystems and and there's great work happening in preventing further such loss but there are also so many habitats that are changed to a point that it's where it's not really an option to return to previous species composition at least not without extremely violent interventions that might have no end so i think in habitats like that that are kind of altered beyond recognition to a new state we need to make time and space to grieve the loss of of those who have left and then and then learn to celebrate those who are here in in this particular moment in time with us so i think one place to look for better stories is to is to listen to people who have found ways to relate to the weedy plants in question in ways that are culturally and ecologically supportive all plants are embedded in cultures of people and invasive species of weeds are are no exception they're not without culture or stories they have them within the places that they originate from and they and many of them have new stories in places that have adopted them so i think by listening to people who are in deep lived relationship with with these plants or have ancestral knowledge of them from their first range um we can begin to see you know to to build a bridge of understanding i guess the roles such plants may take on when they move into into a new place into a novel range and i also think that's the most kind of minimum level of respect that we can extend to hear the plant stories before determining that they don't belong need to be eradicated um and <laughs> I think we could also tell ourselves better stories just as animals whose mere existence impact plants and there's a story that's I feel like it's so often told right now it's really it's it's shouted in desperate urgency in this time of um of great loss of biodiversity and loss of known ecosystems and familiar climates which is that people all people are negative forces in the natural world with the environment on one side and and humans on the other this idea i think bumps up against um, other pervasive ideas that humans are the the worst invasive species of them all that we are to to stay as still as we can and, and leave all more than human beings alone if we want to have any hope of supporting their livelihoods
I think the the philosophy of or story of, of leave no trace, which instructs people to minimize their impact on the environment as a, as a form of ecological care, has some intersections with, with this stance. But you know, I think no matter what, people do leave traces everywhere we go because we are interdependent members within within every ecosystem we place our bodies into. We're part of the circle of kinship, whether we know it, whether we like it or not. But there are different traces that one can leave, and that's something we do have a choice in. So right, relation stories could start with a recognition of, of traces people leave on the land that support other beings in, in mutual thriving. You know, everywhere that we are, is someone's garden. Sometimes it's, it's a human's garden, sometimes more than. Um, so maybe our new stories can begin by asking the question, is my presence supporting this garden in regenerating biocultural, diverse thriving? Like every land has its people and, and anyone currently walking on that land has the responsibility to to honor the rich cultural and ecological legacies of place and also to give back to that land and to its plants and to their people. And at minimum tell stories that don't continue to interrupt um, traditional stewardship pathways. This topic or this feeling that it's very misanthropic feeling that humans, the best thing humans can do is to stay away from the land, stay away from nature, because if we come close to our more than human kin, we will consume, extract, destroy, disturb negatively, impact negatively. And I know for a long time, I absolutely felt that to be the truth. And even though I think in some cases it is true, it's also impossible for us as humans to be alive and to not have impact on this earth and to not consume. It's an impossible situation we find ourselves in. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering what nuances can we find with our relationship with the earth, knowing that we're kind of between a rock and a hard place where we can't be separate. We're not separate. 
And yet so many of the practices we've been taught and conditioned have been really detrimental. I don't think that there's a one size fits all solution. I think that there's so many of us humans and land in different places need different things. I think probably there's some practices that can overlap, but I, I don't want to ask you, well, what can we all do everywhere? (laughs) Because that's just too, I mean, maybe we could have some general thoughts on that, but, um, in this impossible time, what does right relationship look like with the land or what are some practices or examples you have that have really stuck with you? Well, I think one, one teaching that I, um, that I turn to over and over again is the, the sort of the indigenous protocol of the honorable harvest which I know you're well familiar with as well. Um, I first learned of of this protocol through the words of my mentor, Dr. Robin Walkimer. She frames these teachings as a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the land. And actually, I'd like to read a quick quote by her that I think is very helpful in this discussion. The honorable harvest is a covenant of reciprocity between humans and the land. This simple list may seem like a quaint prescription of how to pick berries, but it is the root of a sophisticated ethical protocol that could guide us in a time when unbridled exploitation threatens the life that surrounds us. Western economies and institutions enmesh us in a a profoundly dishonorable harvest. Collectively, by assent or by inaction, we have chosen the policies we live by. We can choose again. And what I hear in these teachings is a call to remember that we live interdependently and and the only choice within our control is how we engage with our interspecies kin. We depend on other than human relatives. And as with all families, there may be some relatives we like more than others, but picking and choosing who is relative and who is not is only going to lead to more suffering and despair. So I guess coming back to, to sort of weedy relations and engagement with, with land, um, I think a, a good question to, to ask in, in making these decisions of why are certain plants and animals suddenly considered unrelated or irre- irrelevant or suited for erasure out of kinship, including us. And, you know, this, these teachings apply to every exchange between people and the earth. And I think it can be really challenging even with the purest intentions of extending reciprocity and respect to all beings to consistently maintain an honorable approach, maintain an honorable approach with our interactions with the earth when the loudest teachings of mainstream society praise extraction and supremacy of of humans over other creatures. This is by no means an answer to your question. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's the very opposite. But, but to be honest, one thing that helps me continue to face these challenges put up by extractive, dishonorable economies is to, to continually remind myself that there is power and wisdom in, in what we, as a species, do not know. And again, coming back to weedy beings, you know, who, 
who are we to fully know the lives of these so-called invasive plants? Do we know their reasons for making home in unfamiliar soils or what gifts and responsibilities they carry? So I think, I don't know, starting our, our stories and our engagements with the land with, with this teaching is, is, is a really strong place to come from. It's, it's an invitation to see the world as a gift and, and then ask what principles we can apply in a specific place, specific time to, to ensure that, that the gift continues. Yeah, and I guess to again to just bring things back to to weeds, um, since this is one of our um, mutual interests and focuses today. Uh, I think accepting this invitation is sort of stepping into a thoughtful, or the invitation is to step into a thoughtful, respectful relationship. And so, when we learn the ecological roles of weeds and find their nutritional, medicinal, even economic gifts, they immediately become not weeds, as weeds are unwanted. So it becomes, the word just becomes a anachronism of a time before we learn to live in reciprocity with plants. Which I guess, I, yeah, just offer that as kind of an example of how one can can begin considering um, making just yeah engaging with place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really important and tough practice. I think in our time, I think this word honorable is challenging to truly understand if it is honorable or if it's what we want to be honorable, I find. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so many of us, well, honestly, I think most of us really want to be in right relationship with each other and the earth. And we don't want to be the bad guys. We don't want to be implicated and complicit in the damage being done to our human and more than human communities. and. I think a lot about who gets to decide what the honorable harvest is or what is an honorable harvest. I've been working in Alaska for the past few months on helping this community stop this massive mining project and old growth logging. And I got into a really deep discussion with a many deep discussions with uh, some local loggers here. And I live in a little cabin. And as much as I am so fervently against logging and have been for a really long time, they're like, well, where does this wood come from that built your house? Mm -hmm. Where does the wood come from that heats your home and your wood stove? And, And then I thought back to living in Northern California and all the times my myself and my really ecologically wonderful friends, activists would go to Home Depot because they needed to build something and they'd get some two by fours. And it's really hard because for those of us who want to protect the forest, but who still use wood, whether directly or indirectly, I think 
it becomes more complicated what an honorable harvest is. And um, now we could say small scale forest management is more honorable um, because it maybe it's local and it's taking from smaller areas, but maybe those areas are really ecologically important and the sacrifice zones in Oregon and Washington that are, you know, really damaged at this point, but still growing trees. Um, maybe that's in a sense more honorable because it's not taking from places that are ecologically still intact. <laughs> and so I, I'm really not saying either of these are the way I'm sitting in the complexity. I'm sitting in the trouble of this and really questioning how and what is an honorable harvest, you know, in this case of trees in a time where we've lost so much, but in a time where we're still using, and I'm not sure if even those of us who are forest offenders are really not using wood. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I'm raising my hand as one of them. I'm sitting in the trouble right there with you. <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering if you could speak more to the honorable harvest and who do you think gets to make the judgment on the, the honorable harvest like who is it something inside of us because we've built time uh, we've built a relationship with deep time with the land is it is it somebody outside of us like have you explored this with your colleagues or just anything that's even coming to you in this moment mm -hmm. yeah i i mean it's such an important complex question i the first answer that comes to my mind is it it should be the people whose whose homes these uh, honorable harvest decisions are are being made in but of course the the world and, and the communities within it are too complicated to be able to to answer that question in such a way um and yeah, I don't know. It makes me think of, of um, the concept of biocultural restoration that, that my colleagues and I um, invoke a lot. And, and we define it as the, the practice of restoring not just ecosystems, but the human and cultural relationships to place so that cultures are strengthened and revitalized alongside the lands with which they're inextricably linked. And, and of course, it's a... You know, it's a it's a helpful and beautiful call for restoring relationships to a place, um, usually place that one considers home. Um, and I think so often that the you know that that place might have been stolen from other people and, and their ways of being and, and more than human beings who have called at home for long enough to co-evolve with one another and to hold collective memory um, of both uh, you know climactic shifts and, and just understanding of how to how to live in balance with one another and, and how to rely on one another for mutual care um, but Kind of no matter how much 
suffering and greed that that land has seen it it remains a home for those who live there and some stories remain thankfully um so i think all we can do is kind of regrow our right relationship with with a place um and biocultural restoration i think it takes many forms but it's but it's always about restoring that relationship between land and its people and rebuilding good relationships between people um so I, yeah i don't know i think it's just it, i invoke that term because it feels like a cultural way of interacting with with homeland that's incredibly different than kind of prescribing a particular sustainable protocol or um or returning the land to it to sort of a previous version that's frozen in a time which has which has passed and yeah it's it's a call to to kind of move with curiosity and openness and be a student of land So many of the answers or solutions, which I don't even like those words because I don't think that they're real anymore, but where we can get to is just more presence. Mm -hmm. And maybe these ideas of, you know, how to be better stewards and better lovers and better relatives of this earth of the lands that we find ourselves on is maybe presence is the most honorable thing we can give at this time moving from a place of deep curiosity and slowness even though i know it feels so intense to want to change, to want to repair. But mm-hmm. I find even in my personal relationships with loved ones, to repair takes time. And sometimes I want to rush the, the repair stage and I just want to be like, can't we just get over this already? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, that's usually not what people need. And I also notice in my personal relationships to repair 
takes space. It's like, it takes a lot of presence and time and space. And I need to really give that person a chunk of time that is unfettered by distraction. And I really like thinking about how being in healthy personal relationships is really similar to being for me in healthy relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. And if I treat the land like a lover, then how I walk and how I harvest and how I tend and how I think about the longevity of what is to come really shifts. Mm-hmm. So I think I find solace in that. And yeah, there's so much to say, but I almost want to go back to the weeds because <laughs> it helps me get out of the like existential esoteric wormholes, vortexes that just bring me to like a really airy place. But <laughs> spring is definitely here. And yeah, I, you know, going outside, I'm finding yarrow and like I mentioned, dandelion and horsetail and um, gosh, what else right now? Lovage. And, and it's amazing to be able to go to so many places of the world and still see these really powerful medicinal allies that will just grow in so many places. Like they really, they just amaze me how fecund and expansive they are. And yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about how these plants find themselves all across the world in so many different ecosystems. And maybe a second part to that question, I think it might be fun if you shared some of your practices with these weeds, how you cherish them, how you invite them into your life. And uh, maybe inspire some of us to not overlook them so easily. Well, I feel like I, I want to speak to the sort of the, the the gifts that these plants offer. But I'm wondering if you could repeat the first part of your question. That's the part I'm struggling with. That about how they how they move through the world. Well, just thinking about how you can find dandelions in Alaska, in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, in Berlin, like they're, they are just prolific. Mm -hmm. So just considering how powerful these plants are that they, they find themselves, I don't want to say everywhere, which is kind of good, I guess, but (laughs) but a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Let me talk a little or start a little bit broadly. um, Thinking about if we were to think about weedy beings as one giant plant community, um, then I think you could say that their society is built on sort of their inexhaustible willingness to set roots in areas that other plants have been forced to vacate, often by, by human occupation or other forces like floods and volcanoes. And, and the disturbance you know, can turn place into a state that's nearly unrecognizable to the previous inhabitants. And then the weeds see an opportunity to move into this newly vacant zone and quickly make themselves comfortable in, in rubble, which is 
which is one of their superpowers. They are, they are, as you mentioned, you know, they're, um, they travel around, they're resilient and adaptable to, to so, so many circumstances. And they raise large families and, and are hands-off parents. They, they allow their children to, to grow pretty independently. And I think the one important lesson that they, they make sure to pass on to the next generation is, is to be adaptable, to, to sort of practice seeing relationship where, where others might only see desolation. So, so their children grow fast and they often move far, far away. Um, but they, they always organize themselves around opportunity to, to step into a relation wherever they are, whether it's with soil, new animals, new moisture regimes, even um, pollinators. Again, where, where other plant societies might only be able to see destruction. So I think the beauty in their approach that maybe has a lessons that, that um, or some wisdom that can be applied elsewhere is that they, you know, the weeds, they ameliorate the soil in places where, where the soil might be very, very sick and, and then slowly compost that destruction and desolation into habitats that are suited for less weedy plant beings. I would say for me personally, um, as someone who, who has lived far away from my, my original homeland for the majority of my life, um, just seeing these familiar plants in, in different places and, and having, um, it's, it's the strongest way that I know to kind of, to connect to, to land wherever I am. It's, it's uh, almost like an entry path into relationship because I know both the, the sort of ethnobotanical gifts that and relationships that I could have with these plants, but also I, I have a sense of um, what kind of balanced and, and honorable um, harvesting and, and caretaking relationships I can have with them, which is which is a lot more than I can say about other beings in in unfamiliar habitats. And those relationships take so 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 much time sometimes to to have any confidence with. Yeah, so certainly dandelions are are also um, a lifelong ally for me. Sheep sorrel is another plant that I that I have, um, that I'm always so happy to see and have come across on many continents throughout my travels. And, and um, that is also a plant that has such strong memory for me because it's one of the first, um, it's one of my first memories of, of harvesting a, a plant who was just growing themselves out in, in a meadow, but also that, that sharp, um, sour taste and and of course now I know you know an indicator of um of vitamin C nutrition um is has remained with me and I imagine will remain with me throughout um, my life mm.
Beautiful. Well, as we come to a close, Tosha, I'm wondering if there's anything on your mind or anything that you want to share that has yet to be shared so far. I'd love to just open up the floor to you. Thank you. Well, I think to close, I, I want to um, spend a little bit of time um, kind of touching on my, my more current work um, within, with the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment and in cross-cultural partnerships for biocultural restoration. Um, and I will have to keep, keep with our theme. <laughs> um, to touch on, on the, the weedy and plant relationships that intersect with that. I, at, at the Center for Native Peoples and Environment, we're engaged in various partnerships that aspire to carry out justice for the land. Um, and in this work, we often invoke the, the phrase of, of finding balance at the speed of trust, which I first learned about uh, from First Light Learning Journey um, organization. And it's an important framing for, for cross-cultural relationships between humans, of course, but, but I, I find it also deeply relevant in, um, in interspecies relationships involved in, in any biocultural work. Um, I think moving at the speed of trust here means learning from land, taking time to observe um, how things interact with each other, independent of socially constructed origin stories with we place on them, um, as you so beautifully said, giving giving presence. Um, I would also add giving giving attention and respect when it comes to so-called invasive species. Maybe it's taking the time to kind of find out what their reasons for being are. Um, and maybe from there we can learn how to step into reciprocal relation with them. And yeah, as with cross-cultural partnerships for biocultural restorations that are between people, it's, it's important to remember also about long-term commitment to, to the land, not just for a season or for the duration of, say, grant funding, but, but we must draw on knowledge and memory of the past uh, in order to commit to caretaking of the future, I think. And these cross-cultural partnerships, they, they in turn, they've, they've, impacted my interactions with, with all plants so tremendously, weedy and otherwise. I think when, you know, when we consider interacting with plants or even talking about land and, and any of its inhabitants, I see the first step toward respect and reciprocity um, is actively honoring um, indigenous knowledge and sovereignty. And maybe that is the, the one piece of advice that, that can be applied across the world. Just thinking back on our sort of, uh, you know, theoretical <laughs> speculating on, on, on what, um, how, how to honorably engage um, 
in, in various times and places and communities. You know, indigenous ecological knowledge just inherently benefits all by offering practices that are that are place-based and ecologically and culturally appropriate and, and sustainable. And here on the continent of Turtle Island, just like anywhere else uh, on the planet, there are, there are people who have cohabitated with the land since time immemorial and, and whose, whose language and culture and creation stories reflect deep relationship to place and, and whose knowledge and practices of, of science demonstrate environmental stewardship that it just incredibly benefits people and other beings. So it results in, in healthy forests and strengthens biodiversity and air and water. And not only that, but it's exactly the, the land interactions, the, the changes that these cultures make to their home ecosystems that, that foster um, greater climate resiliency and greater biodiversity adaptation. Um, and whose, you know, cultures whose records of environmental sustainability is, is time-tested to a degree that's so far beyond the length of a human life that it can be hard to comprehend. So yeah, so in closing, I, I guess I just want to say that for, for anyone aspiring to, to support the livelihood of diverse beings and not, not knowing this part of the story and, and not working in alliance with indigenous communities who continue to carry out their commitment to the environment in spite of all, all the many cruel forces that don't, don't need to list. <laughs> They're obvious. Um, it's, it's, it's like reading a book with every third word missing. I like that metaphor. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Tisha. This has been a really beautiful conversation and I look forward to more in the future. Thank you so much, Anna. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Ali Deneen and Violet Bell. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Julia Jackson.